From my parents' house in Lake Orion, Michigan, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. And that's why it is so important today that we reaffirm our character as a nation, a people drawn from every corner of the world, every color, every religion, every background, bound by a creed as old as our founding, e pluribus unum. Out of many, we are one. For we know that our diversity, our patchwork heritage, is not a weakness. It is still and always will be one of our greatest strengths. That's President Obama in 2016, quoting a common phrase written on our national seal and our money. E pluribus unum. It's a Latin phrase that, when translated to English, means, out of the many, we are one. This idea helped shape the United States of America. You've heard of the idea that America is a melting pot where many people come together and form one beautiful united identity. We've always been a place that welcomes the masses from every corner of the world, and through our free market-based system, gives everyone a chance at success if they're willing to work for it. We are rugged individuals, united under one flag. But if you've been paying attention to the national dialogue happening right now, you've probably heard the term identity politics used. So what is it? What does it mean for our culture? Is this the end of E Pluribus Unum? Let's see if CNN's Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon can help us better understand identity politics as they posit the notion that this is the reason President Trump was elected. Why were the identity politics in play for them? Economic insecurity, the feeling the process doesn't look out for them. I'm glad you pointed that out because um, the right is always accusing the left of identity politics. Mm -hmm. And there is no greater identity politics than what is going on now with with the Republican Party and with the Trump supporters. We haven't seen this in a generation. We have not seen this in a generation. Mm -hmm. We have not seen somebody actively dividing the country along lines of traditional bigotries like we do now. And, mm-hmm. you know, it makes you think uh, when you're, you know, our age and you've been in this a while, people warned that, you know, you think it's over. You think the fight is won. You think everything's OK in this country now. And you're wrong. This is an right. experiment. And I remember being like, yeah, 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 we could always do better. But come on. I mean, look how far we've come. Hmm. OK. Interesting. But we're still not clear on what it is. From listening to them, this is something that's been cooked up and perpetuated by the right. What's the left's role in this? And 
what side do we believe? Well, right now it's everywhere. You know, okay. it, it's it's we're constantly bathing in it. Uh, it. It is not just on our campuses and our and our universities. It is in 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 our corporations. It is in our entertainment. It is a, a everywhere. Mike Gonzalez is a friend of Heritage Explains, and he's also the Angelus T. Arredondo e Pluribus Unum Senior Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He's got a brand new book out called The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the Land of the Free. This book exposes the myths that help identity politics perpetuate itself. It reveals what has really happened and explains why it's urgent to change course. This week, he takes us back to the beginning and explains where we currently stand and what we need to do to get back to E Pluribus Unum. Mike, Google defines identity politics as, quote, a tendency for people of a particular religion, race, social background, etc., to form exclusive political alliances moving away from traditional broad-based party politics. So that's Google's definition. Your definition in the book is, quote, the deliberate creation of pan-ethnic and other identity groups. The idea that members of this panoply of collectives should get compensatory justice, the culture of victimhood, all of this engenders. Now, there's a big difference between those definitions. Can you square that for me? Yeah, I think what Google does is that it leaves out the political content of identity politics, the concerted effort by ideologues to create these groups, to imbue them with a sense of grievances, to make political demands, and to then move on and try to change the country completely, to completely transform America. So it's not that people all of a sudden in the 1960s and 70s decided to sort themselves out by a race or ethnicity or sex or sexual orientation or gender identity or even disability status. No, it wasn't that case that, that, that at all. And, and Google's definition uh, leaves that out and leaves it out for a reason. No, it was ideologues and activists who convinced, intimidated bureaucrats and government officials into creating these collectivities, these categories. Uh, and, and, and these collectivities, surprise, surprise, had a collectivist goal in mind. Yeah, go, go into that just a little bit more. You say collectivist goal. And, and the book, by the way, and I, I, I got to give the title here because it's, it's, it's fantastic. The, the book title is The Plot to Change America, How Identity Politics is Dividing the land of the free. Now, you talk about a concerted effort in the 60s and or the plot. Tell me more about the plot, because that stinks of, you know, conspiracy and things like that. But but we know it was um, engineered and designed to do something. So tell me more about the plot. Yeah. So it is a plot in the sense that everybody is reading the same texts and following the same ideas. There are no Thursday night meetings in the basements somewhere in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> or in Brooklyn. Uh, but there, it is a it, it, you you do have people uh, in positions of power um, 
who, who are all reading critical uh, theory or critical race theory or critical legal theory or critical studies. And, and this in, in critical theory does have an origin in, in the academy, does have an origin in the Frankfurt School. Uh, these ideas do have an origin in postmodernism. Wait, can... wait, let me stop you really quick. Explain critical theory to me because I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so critical theory is this idea that was first put forward in a book by Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno in the 1930s that everything needed to come under criticism, that all the norms and all the traditions and all the institutions and all the structures have to come under a severe criticism. The interesting thing, you know, this fellow, this historian, Martin Jay, uh, who was sympathetic to the Frankfurt School, wrote a very good history of it. Uh, and, and what he points out is that they were only criticizing the West and its ideas and its institutions and its norms and its traditions. At, the t- at a time when uh, Joseph Stalin was killing uh, millions of people in Russia and especially in Ukraine, uh, they, they did not the Frankfurt School did not in the least criticize the Soviet Union, only did very superficially. Um, And that is the reason for that is that they were Marxists. They were neo-Marxists. They were Western Marxists. I'm wondering at a point, I mean, we, we have institutionalized identity politics, no question about it. What, what, when did it start becoming, you know, legislated? Okay. I'll I'll give you a point. 1974, when the Census Bureau first decides to create the first National Advisory Committee on Race and Ethnicity, and it creates one for people of Spanish origin Mm. in 1974. And the reason this is key is that many people today say, well, the reason we have all of these uh, identities, you have this Hispanic identity, is because of the great immigration of people from Latin America that starts in 1965 when we change uh, the immigration laws. First, the 1965 law did not in the least change any quotas for immigration from Latin America because there were no quotas for immigration from Latin America before 1965. Second, in 1974, we hadn't really had any demographic change yet Hmm. Um, uh, because, I I mean, in fact, I think I've I've tried to look at the figures for the foreign-born in 1974, and it was uh, one of the lowest points in American history. I think the foreign-born then accounted for like 4.5% of the population compared to almost 14% today. Today, it is an almost a historic high. Back in 1974, it was at a historic low. And yet, the Census Bureau creates the National Advisory Committee uh, on Race and Ethnicity. And, And then in 1977, the Office of Management and Budget decrees that all surveys carried out by the government must include a newly created category, Hispanics, um, which is created not because people demand it, because the people did not demand it, but is created in in a neon-lit office uh, with, uh, uh, you know, an elite cadre of activists meeting with bureaucrats. And then 1980, the first census that includes these two pan-ethnicities, Hispanics and Asians. Asians, you know, we talk about Hispanics a lot, but Asians is a completely, uh, it's it's a collectivity, a category that means nothing because it includes Americans of Korean descent. It includes Americans of Indian descent. It includes Americans of Filipino descent, of Chinese descent, of Malaysian descent, uh, of Pakistani descent, people 
with very different cultural indicators uh, when you come to household income or years of education. Yeah, you and I'm just going to read this quote um, as you as you hit on it, because it just it jumped out at me. And, and, and uh, Mike says in his in his new book, The Plot to Change America, how identity politics is dividing the land of the free. You say, quote, the creation of identity groups has not been a project to upend the hegemonic hold on power of Protestant white male America to give subordinate groups a share of pie. It was a far more ambitious and encompassing enterprise. It was about destabilizing or pl- problematizing in a language of its entrepreneurs, all social norms. Mike, that is extremely powerful. Elaborate on that. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing that today when people are using the tragedy of the death of of Mr. Floyd or George Floyd to say that America is is structurally and systemically racist, which means that, and they, they say this, they say that all the structures need to be changed. All the structures need to be transformed. The system itself, and the system is just a word for the way everything works. Uh, the system needs to be transformed, you know, and, and that is everything, right? In uh, America, you, you have this dichotomy in which you have a, a country with this unheard of, this ahistoric levels of, uh, of, of um, wealth production and of freedom attainment, so much so that there's a very long line of people out the door waiting to immigrate here from all sorts of countries, uh, from from Asia, from Europe, from Latin America, from Africa, that there's a long line of people to come here because of the prosperity that, that people can enjoy here, because they want to partake in the American dream. And then you have this dedicated cadre of, of ideologues who want to destroy this and institute a different model, a different system one which is more continental, one which is um, uh, which which has more of a European welfare state. And you hear this constantly. President Obama was one leader out of many on the left who would say every major industrialized country has this, whatever that would be, socialized medicine or or whatever, and and we don't. Yes, we're different. We're meant to be different. We're different from Europe. You know, the founding fathers may have originally come from England, but we're different from Europe. It's funny. You you use the term uh, in the book, the culture of victimhood. And I think about I think about all the things about me that I can't change now. You know, I can't change my skin color. I can't change. Well, I guess I could change my gender, but you know what I mean? I can't change my I am what I am kind of a thing. And how the left has played on turning who you are into victimhood is a very, very dangerous proposition. And so the culture of victimhood, explain that just a little bit more. Well, let me actually go to where you just went, this idea of immutable characteristics. And this this goes back to Marcuse and, and Gramsci. They, Gramsci sat in prison and realized that Marx and Engels had promised that there would be many revolutions, that the working class uh, inexorably would overthrow the bourgeoisie, that it was scientific. And yet, from 1848, when you had a bunch of failed revolutions in Europe, to the time of, that Gramsci is writing in the early 30s, there has only been one successful revolution, right? There was the, the, the revolution in, in a backwater place in Europe called Russia in 1917. 
but 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 the revolution in Germany failed. The revolution in Italy failed. The revolution there was a short-lived Hungarian Soviet, but it lasts only 133 days in 1919. And Gramsci realizes that the worker has is is too intent on improving his own lot individually. So you can change your class, but as you said, you cannot change your race or your sex. So this is why then the the, the locus of of revolution shifts from economics, from uh, economic classes, the bourgeoisie and the workers, to characteristics that are immutable. Sex, uh, country of origin, uh, you know, national origin, and, 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 and race unchangeable because then they realize that that this that this is a lot more this this sticks a lot more and then based on that based on these traits are immutable if you have um, struggle sessions or consciousness raising sessions in which you uh, tell them you're a victim Marcuse had a great phrase which he wrote I believe in one dimensional man he said uh, liberation starts with the understanding of servitude, I'm paraphrasing here because, but he's the, liberation must start with with recognition of servitude. So you must first tell these groups based on on race or, or ethnicity or national origin or sex that they're that they are under the yoke the yoke of servitude. Then they will want to rebel, and then you have revolution, and then you overthrow the American system. Again, an American system that for all its imperfections have, have, has produced a, the, the greatest amount of liberty and prosperity known to man. Now, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. You know, many people would say, but these groups have been, they have had exponentially harder challenges being accommodated to a, a system that they weren't used to or racism from the past, things like that. So we need these kind of measures in place in order to safeguard and make sure we don't go back down that road. Respond to that. You see, that, and that is what they want to do. They say it was compensatory justice. You know, in my book, I don't have a chapter for African-Americans. African-Americans, their experience is unique. They were brought to this country. Uh, their ancestors were brought in chains. They were enslaved for centuries. Then after, after, after they were emancipated, you had 100 years of, of Jim Crow. Uh, so you had legal segregation. So you can say that African-Americans actually do have a legitimate grievance. And we can talk about that and we should, we should come to, we should be able to discuss that in our country. But every other group has, you know, they, 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 the story of immigration has always been very tough. So, but, but it, it, it defies, uh, it defies belief that somebody who arrives in this country should be the beneficiary of compensatory justice. Um, I myself arrived as a, ch- as a kid with my family in 1974 in Queens, New York. Uh, pray tell me, what compensatory justice am I owed uh, by the country that took me in? It, 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 just, it, 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 it beggars understanding. It's absurd. Um, and, 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 but they, but, in the creation of identity politics, when the, the, the foundations that are first laid, I go into this in my book, The Plot to Change America, This, the, the, the creators of this created this analogy. 
they said, yes, this is analogous to the black situation. Even with women, there was they, they created an, an, a, the analogy to the black experience. As, as, as I said, the black experience is unique. Now, we can't, uh, obviously, this is um, a, a plot to upend the culture that, that we have come to know and love as Americans. Um, and we can't really fix something unless we know where the problem is coming from. So my question, and I was wondering this as I was reading through the book, who is responsible, most responsible for pushing and perpetuating this culture? Is it corporations? Is it media? Is it government? What about ourselves? Are we, are we the problem? What, what, how would you take that question on? Well, right now it's everywhere. You know, it's, it's, we're constantly bathing in it. Uh, it, it is not just on our campuses and our, and our universities. It is in, in, in our corporations. That's the, the latest line, the, bat, the latest battle line is now the Fortune 500. It is in our entertainment. It is a, a everywhere. But if you, so I look at this, I look at this issue as a, if, if, what kind of a problem is it? I see it as a, as a, a factory that is spewing toxins uh, into a river. And it's polluting the river, so the, the river is completely polluted. The fish are dying. The, the the algae is dying. The first thing you must do is close down the factory and shut off the pipes that are spewing the, the poison into the river. After you shut down that factory, you stop the the the, 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 the toxins being uh, released into the waters of the river. Then you must take other steps. You must go in and clean out the river and clean out the the algae and try to save the fish and the wildlife and all that. Uh, so I believe you get the government out of the business of creating uh, categories. You rescind uh, the, the, the 1977 uh, rule um, by OMB that creates the categories. Uh, you rescind the 1997 revision of it. Uh, you don't uh, create new ones. For example, the revision that uh, President Obama attempted in 2016. Um, and, and then you get rid of the incentivizers. You get rid of the, 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 of affirmative action. You get, you get rid of racial preferences in universities or government contracting or, or anything that has to do uh, with the government um, because this is what, what that receives a government money because this is what convinces people to adhere uh, to these categories. Uh, you know, in my book, in one of the chapters, which I devote to the attempt to create MENA, uh, I captured the, the debate that took place at the, at the Census Bureau in 2015 when you, they brought in one of these quote-unquote experts, which, by the way, was Linda Sarsour, <laughs> the radical leftist. And they say Americans of Arab descent, of whom there are many, do not want this right now. But once they understand that they will get huge benefits – uh, when they adhere to this group category, they will like it. They will. So, so this is a clear incentive to first they create the categories and then they give you an incentive to adhere to it. If the government gets out of this business, I believe you begin the necessary work to get rid of identity politics. Now, the reason I wrote my book, The Plot to Change America, is to change how we Americans think about these issues how we Americans see uh, identity politics. We don't really know what it is. Uh, as you, you read on Google, a very 
a, a, a very diluted definition of, of the political program that it is. I want to us to understand that it is a political program. I want us to understand that it is based on categories that are synthetic and government created. Mike, it's an incredible book. It's an incredible look. I'm looking forward to seeing what the response is out of this because I think it's going to ruffle feathers. Well, I know it's going to ruffle feathers. It already is. So please um, come back and um, give us more. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Heritage Explains. Take some time this week and head over to the show notes. I've linked to Mike's book. Now, this is something you're going to want to arm yourself with so you can better stand up against the false narrative currently being pushed by the left about America. Also, if you've got a second, don't forget to leave us a comment or a five-star rating. Better yet, do both. Michelle's up next week, and we'll see you then. Be well. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.